Welcome to The Program, a podcast dedicated to exposing the institutional child abuse that occurred at the hands of WASP, or Worldwide Association of Specialty Programs, an organization that owned a network of dozens of schools that systemically abused at-risk teens and exploited their parents for millions of dollars. This podcast aims to expose those responsible and seek justice for the damage caused to the innocent children who endured unspeakable abuse. This podcast is for the survivors. I dedicate this to you. Hey guys, it is your host, Caroline Lorson. I am back. It has been so long and I send my deepest condolences for keeping you guys waiting for as long as I have. I was actually brought on as the senior government relations coordinator for Breaking Code Silence. And me being the very motivated and driven person that I am uh, that may have a small inclination to overcommit myself on things that I care about, I kept thinking, you know what? I, I can do this. I can do this. I can work a full-time job while leading Breaking Code Silence in legislative efforts while hosting a podcast that takes me about eight hours per episode to edit and produce, et cetera, et cetera. So needless to say, I discovered the hard way that no, I cannot manage absolutely everything while running a family on top of all of the commitments I just listed. But here I am. Alas, we are back. We are in the works. I am so incredibly excited for the next several episodes that are coming out. And for our episode today with our guest, Emily Graber, who is going to tell you about her experience in going through the Second Nature Wilderness Camp before being transported to Island View, which is a facility that has uh, some pretty brutal history around it. So... Not to give the story away, but I think you will be interested to hear about her escape from Island View, which led her to San Francisco all by herself at 15 years old, and she discusses the incredible people that she met along the way, and ultimately her transport back to Island View. You don't want to miss this episode. So here's the deal. I have got so much to catch you up on with what's going in on in politics around the troubled teen industry and significant movements that we have made forward. Since we last talked, Breaking Code Silence has been able to build some incredible partnerships, including the ACLU, the American Bar Association, and Born Perfect, the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. There's just so many to name. So this is what we're going to do. I am going to release a special update episode tomorrow in conjunction with the episode that we're doing today. And in tomorrow's episode, I am going to walk you through the incredible journey that we've had the past several months in getting attention on this issue and regulating this industry once and for all. So join me tomorrow for that. Uh, I am also going to be playing clips of the Senate hearing that we had in Utah this past week. And I'm also going to share some clips from the Senate floor. They, they voted on this bill that we're wanting to get passed in Utah to regulate the troubled teen industry. And some of the incredible words 
that these lawmakers had to give us over the troubled teen industry was just absolutely heart-wrenching. You can ask my boyfriend. I was sobbing on the couch watching them vote on this bill and just listening to how people were moved. And even some of these politicians finally felt like they could talk about their experiences with the troubled teen industry. It was very emotional. So stay tuned for that tomorrow. But just a gentle little reminder, I do operate solely based off of donations. So if it is in your heart to donate, it means more than anything to me. Because if I'm able to generate more income, that means I can spend more time creating this podcast and spreading information and and fighting for this cause. There is a link down below if you would like to donate to me personally. That is so appreciated. And without further ado, let's welcome our guest, Emily Graber. Hello, Emily. Welcome to the podcast. I am so thrilled to have you here, first off, because I've already read a little bit about your story. So I know that it's mind-blowing. Thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for doing this. It means so much to everybody and, you know, it's so cool to see somebody stepping up and getting our stories out there. I'm really excited. It's been such an honor. Every single story that I hear is just, um, I mean, I think about it after, right? Like this is not just like a job for me where I'm like, okay, check in, check out. No, like it stays with me. So I'm really excited to learn about you and what you went through. And my God, I just, wow. Um, Everyone has to hear this. It's fascinating. So tell us what programs did you go to and how long were you there for? So I'm 28 years old now, but I was sent to Second Nature Wilderness and I was there for three months. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I was sent to Island View Residential Treatment Center for 17 months. For 17 months. That's quite a long time. How did that happen? What happened in your life that you ended up going to these programs? Yeah, so I was kind of a rebellious 14-year-old smoking cigarettes. I was obsessed with pot as I am now. I think in 2007, I feel like there was more of a stigma around that, especially in the South. So I was like, I have to skip school. I have to dye my hair black. And, you know, I would blast like Nirvana and Tupac all day and Sublime. And my parents were just like, what do we do? Um, And I was, you know, engaging in other self-destructive behaviors, hanging out with older kids and just kind of going with the flow and and being influenced by uh, others around me. I was very impressionable at that age and I didn't really know who I was or who I wanted to be. And my parents were very obsessed with this idea of like me not turning into my birth mother. I'm adopted. Mm. So they were just constantly like for as long as I could remember, like don't turn into Jody. And so... I think some of my behaviors were like the exact opposite, where I was very much like doing the things my birth mother did. I've realized I faced some very sexual abuse, like like in the age range of like five to eight, like when you would still have a bow in your hair by a pediatrician. And it's always been a very vague memory because I was so young. You know, I've decided that 
absolutely makes sense. The issues I had, like, mm-hmm. kind of in the years after that, that that memory is real and valid. So, but none of that is like deserving of what happened within the program. So it's like always hard for me to identify why I get sent away because, you know, there's really no valid reason to do that to a kid. Right. I get that. And I I think as we hear more of these stories from survivors, it's like, wow, that's like also typical teenage behavior, right? You're trying to figure yourself out. You're trying to kind of push the limits a little bit. And that's growing up right? We figure ourselves out. If we never rebelled, if we were always just like these little perfect robotic children, then what would life be, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't really have that true essence of who we are. So, okay. So you're like, you're figuring yourself out. You're kind of rebellious. You're listening to Nirvana, maybe smoking some pie, all of that stuff. Um, so what happened? Did you know that you were going to be sent away or was it uh, yeah, walk me through what ha- what happened exactly with you actually being sent. I, and you said that the wilderness program was first, right? Correct. So basically, like, in the week before the night I got taken away, it was December. It was, like, the week of Christmas. I got kidnapped on December 27th, like, the day after. Uh, and so I noticed... In reflection, once I was sitting in the woods in Georgia, I was like, my family was super, super nice to me all week. And my sister went to a sleepover and she like hugged me before she left and was like, goodbye, Emily. And I like pushed her off, like, get the fuck off me. We don't touch. Like we weren't the hugging type. And my mom had the whole week kept insisting on me spending time with her, which was also like not a common occurrence. And maybe a couple months before they sent me away, my mom had mentioned, would you want to go to a place in the woods and you can play with animals all day and it will be so fun. And like, there will be other girls like you. And I was just like, no, I hate you. Like, no, what, what are you talking about? So, yeah, in the the middle of the night, maybe middle of the morning, 4 a.m., two people showed up in my bedroom. They woke me up being like, you have to come with us. And they were like hovering over me. I thought I was about to get actually kidnapped. Like I thought they were there to steal me and the TV and my mom's diamonds. And I see my parents like huddled together in the corner, like sobbing into each other. And they're like you have to go with these people to get the help that you need. And I'm like frantic. Like I have such a vivid recollection of everything except getting to my house or from my house to the airport. And so I'm pretty sure in the moments where I fought back, cause I have vague memory that fades out into nothing. And then I wake up in an airport, but They carried me by my arms down my parents' steps. I remember being carried and them holding me so tight and digging their fingers into me. And then I remember going out the back door and then putting me in a car. And then it just, and then I I wake up in an airport and I didn't know what state I was in until I saw a sign that said, welcome to Georgia. Meaning they put my like limp, lifeless body onto an airplane and nobody questioned them. I like, as soon as I kind of 
came to and was clear enough to speak, I started screaming. I was like, help, these people are kidnapping me. Somebody help. Like I was, I was genuinely felt like I was getting kidnapped. And so a TSA agent actually approached us and like, I was like, oh, this is my lifeline. This is great. Right. And uh, then they pulled out these guardianship papers and they were like, no, we have legal guardianship of her. Like we're not kidnapping her. Her parents hired us to take her somewhere. And TSA was like, sorry, kid, you're on your own. And I'm like, (laughs) and so I like busted away from them, started running through the airport. Crazy. I'm so subdued now as an adult that like all the things I describe, I'm like, you're wild. Um, But (laughs) so they like caught up to me and threw zip ties, plastic zip ties on my hands, put me in the back of a car and started driving in silence. Like would not tell me what was going on, where they were taking me. They did offer to take me to Chick-fil-A. They were like, they kept saying like, do you want your last meal? And I was like, what is this? Like, are you about to go like kill me? Like what is happening here? And I'm like, no, I don't want Chick-fil-A. And so at one point they pulled over and they folded a bandana up and put it over my eyes Mm -hmm. and said I needed to be blindfolded so I wouldn't be able to find my way out if I tried to run away as if my 14 year old mind would have been able to recognize those surroundings like come on so we drove for like two hours with me and zip ties and blindfold they stopped pulled me out and that's where we reached um, like the intake and, and, and that's when they told me you're at second nature, you're in the Blue Ridge mountains in Georgia. Good luck. And then they left me with those people, with the new people. Wow. That's incredible. So, uh, I feel like honestly, the idea of being blindfolded and taken somewhere is so much more traumatizing because it makes it very clear that like you did not have a choice right we don't care how you feel we don't care if you want to see where you're going or anything this is what you're doing you arrive at second nature what happens next you walk in i guess right um what happened So it was like a cabin in the woods and just nothing around it, just this one cabin at the end of the road. There was like eight or nine adults in there. All the men were definitely wearing cowboy hats and cowboy boots and tight jeans. And, you know, like I remember one of them had a gun on his waist and immediately they were like, you know, we have to strip search you, go in this room. And I'm like, excuse me, what? I'm 14. You're a man. I don't think so. They were like, okay, we'll wait. And then like, I, I sat there and refused for two hours. And then that's when they started pulling my clothes off of me. They had a female do that at least. But then I was made to like shake out my hair, spread my arms, spread my butt cheeks, squat, cough as if I shoved cocaine or other goodies up there you know like I was 14 I was not a heavy duty drug addict by any means so they were all very harsh and abrasive and wouldn't really tell me like what this place was like and so they strip searched me I had to shower with a de-lousing shampoo that I'm sure you're familiar with so that you don't go give everybody lice 
They gave me like new clothes, these big hiking boots, big clunky boots, a big backpack that like towered over my head and a tarp. Like at that point in my life, I had barely even touched a stick. Like, you know, like, I I mean, like that's being dramatic, but like I had been to summer camp maybe, but that we were in cabins. And so I was like, no, I've never been camping. And he's like, well, good luck to you and laughed. And then they took me into the woods. And as we approached this campsite where I saw a fire and like all these tarps, <laughs> intent shapes and then there was a group of girls standing in a circle and I immediately realized like they're all wearing the same clothes that I am and I was like what is this place what's going on here and that was like kind of my first introduction into the like parallel universe that these places are the girls were circled up playing big booty a hand clapping game and as I was brought past them, they all like were like dead eyes on each other and like as if they were in a trance playing this game. None of them even like as if they were supposed to acknowledge my presence. But well, like yeah, in a normal setting though, you kind of would. You're like, oh hey, new person here. Like you know what's right. going on or something or yeah. So yeah. I eventually learned that like you're not supposed to acknowledge new intakes like to bring them down to you know like you're just supposed to not even acknowledge them until they gain the privilege to talk. I was like, sat down. They were like, you have to sit here. And I was like, you're going to take me home, dude. Like, what is this place? There's no way this is like outside 24 seven. And they were like, yes. And I was like, where do you go to the bathroom? And they were like, the P tarp is there. The number two tarp is over there. And I'm like, what is this world? Where are we? The number two tarp. Um, Yeah, no, thank you. Something in me, like I was so enraged. I just started screaming for hours. And it wasn't just like minor. It was like guttural screams, hoping somebody would hear me and come help me because I was terrified. I was like, what is this cult? Why is nobody talking to me? Why are they telling me I can't talk to anybody? And then fell asleep on the rocks that they had dictated as mine and kind of waited around to be told what to do. Yeah. Wow. My gosh. So what I find so interesting is that these places are so like shrouded in secrecy, right? It's like no talking. You can't find out. Like, I mean, it's essentially like we're going to do everything to try and traumatize you as much as possible, right? Like that's kind of the the cocktail that they're making. It's like two parts trauma, you know, one part fear, right? Like that's the cocktail. So my God. So, okay. So you said ultimately you were there for three months. So tell me what the hell happened in those three months. Okay. So finally, I'm going to assume that like you got kind of acclimated and, and maybe eventually they let you talk. What happened? It took me a while to get with the program, so to speak. Like, it took me a while to follow the rules and phase up. So, like, they had different phases, which were levels, but they were, like, 
water phase, earth phase, fire phase. (sighs) Everything was always in a circle. And basically, like, in order to level up to the point where you could talk to that first level, you had to complete a letter of accountability, which was like fessing up to everything you did that your parents probably sent you there for. And so like, I had to rewrite mine like four times before they let me talk. And it was like 14 pages each time. And then you have to read it to this group of girls that you don't know. And they sit there and afterwards like critique you and give you feedback. And then you're just like, okay, I'll go write another 14 pages, sorry. And then you send it to your parents, your parents send one back and then you get the first phase but the ceremonies they would do for when you would phase up were so cult-like like ritualistic like we would have to gather rocks big stones and put them in a circle and then we would stand around the stones and there'd be freaking flowers in the middle of the circle and they'd sing a native american song and it just it was really a bit you know like yeah i was like what the fuck is this place like uh the whole time I was there until maybe like the last month and a half I kind of got used to living in the woods and kind of enjoyed it and and became a leader and I I became very close with some of the girls in that program I was 14 I was really young and a lot of them were like 15 16 17 so I was like the little sister and they all took care of me. And one story about wilderness I have is there was a young girl who came into the group and she was eventually, you know, got to the point where she was allowed to talk and she came up and introduced herself, big, tall, blonde girl. She said, hi, I'm Emily from St. Louis. And I was like, wait, I'm Emily from St. Louis, you know, and it turns out like we, of course, like small town style, like we had gone to rival high schools. We knew a lot of the same people, but we decided to keep that. I was like, we can't tell them. We can't tell them. Like, let's be friends. But like, we. and so my story about Emily has always been to describe the medical neglect that would go on. Emily rolled her ankle broke her ankle and they made her prove that it was broken like they were like walk on it and she was like well I can't like in tears took her to the hospital we all thought she was going to be sent home because her her foot was broken and so it's kind of hard to hike 10 miles a day with an injured leg and she showed up two days later with a boot on her foot and was made to hike in a boot. And we all carried her shit and helped her, but like she had crutches in a boot. And she ended up this year, she actually hung herself. And that was tragic for me. This year? Yeah. Or in 2019, I think. Um, Within within the last year though. Yeah. Yeah. So, and like, that's just such a horrific way to die. And I know she probably carried a lot of pain that she had never even addressed and maybe wasn't even aware of why she was in the pain. She, but that kills me and I miss her. And it was really cool to have a little slice of home in the middle of nowhere in the woods. Like that was, you know, I'm so grateful to have been able to interact with her like that. Oh, I'm so sorry for that. 
And I think that people who go to these programs have an incredibly high suicide rate, you know, and I think it's probably a combination of things. You know, if we are in a household with parents who feel that sending their kids away is a good idea, usually there is some kind of lack of support or emotional disconnection and, you know, especially just going through dissociation and all of all of that that um, comes with being in these programs. So you end up adjusting finally, right? You're kind of like a month and a half in. And so finally you're feeling like you kind of get the hang of it a little bit. You know, you're, you're starting to adjust your, your surroundings. So when you leave, did you graduate the program? And what was that like? I would say I graduated second nature. Um, I was there long enough. And I think I was on the last phase when I left. Once I was deemed ready to leave, they had a big ceremony for the three girls that were transitioning to transition camp. And basically, like, we said goodbye to everybody, and the three of us went in a car, which was so weird to go in a vehicle after, after three months. And then... We met our parents in the woods. Basically, they were all blindfolded and we had to find a stick. And then our parents would be holding hands with each other. And they were each like, you know, my parents were here. You know, another girls were there lined up and you had to run to your parents. And they, the, pro, the second nature loved the whole, like the running as the big exit. And right, um, the drama, the... Uh, so theatrical and gross but so like I approached my parents with the stick and they reached out and grabbed it and then you had to silently lead them through the woods and to a circle with made of rocks and flowers and bullshit and so then they took off their blindfolds and everybody burst into tears and hugs and I didn't know it then but like just there was a big shift between me and my parents like even then like I felt the distance been created between us just in those three months and things didn't feel the same with them anymore and they basically told me you're not going to come home we're going to take you to straight to Utah your program in Utah basically Aspen Education Group owned Second Nature uh-huh. so conveniently my parents were given a list of Aspen owned facilities and told that if they did not send me to another place, I would die because the transition from living in the woods to going back to St. Louis would be too jarring. So they kind of conned my parents into that. And I have letters that I've reviewed, like, you know, for the video and like, There's letters of my mom describing Island View. And she's like, it's a really comfy place. The girls there are so nice. I met a few of them. They say they have so much fun there. And they really all seem so happy. And I was like, oh, this Island View place sounds great. Yeah, Island View, that sounds magical, right? (laughs) But guess what? There was no island and no view. (laughs) It's a lie. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I just, I want to back up for a second because I just want to comment on, you know, okay, nothing against uh, 
any kind of salespeople, right? Not trying to offend the salespeople group. Um, <laughs> but I feel like, you know, with these programs, it's such a like, it's such a marketing scam, right? Because they already know your parents are desperate. Your parents are going to believe anything, anything that they're being told, right? And so it reminds me, okay, let me, let me phrase it like this. It, it reminds me of like going to the mechanic, right? You bring your car into the shop and then like you just go in for an oil change and they're like, <clears throat> oh, okay, well, we're going to do this oil change, but we also noticed that uh, you need new brake pads. But while you're there, you might as well get an alignment because there's no point in doing the oil change and all this other stuff if you don't get, um, you know, the alignment. And then they talk you into some other thing and then you've got to get the warranty, right? And so they're just tacking on all of this stuff. And so, I mean, it's the same thing. You come out of this um, wilderness program and they're like, oh, but wait a second. No, she needs this other program and this isn't going to be be as successful if she doesn't have this other program. Yeah. <laughs> so wild. Okay. So your parents are like, we're in. She's going to Island View. What the hell? So do you go straight there? Like you don't go home at all. You go straight to Island View. Like tell me what that was like. Yeah. So I remember like there was, you know, like a rental cabin. Like there was one night where our parents slept with us in the woods to get the full wilderness experience. You know, it was supposed to connect us. And then we stayed one night in a hotel where I like showered 15 times and ate real food. And then, yeah, my mom and I flew to Utah and my dad flew back home. And I remember like being excited and like my mom built it up, which she tends to do, you know, <laughs> she's dramatic like I am, but I was just, I remember it was a good feeling until I walked through the doors. I remember like being pulled into a room in the front office, which the front area where really parents, like when they brought their kids in, they didn't surpass that front area unless they were on a tour. But that front area was like gorgeous, very yeah. cushy, cute couches, nice decor, whatever, to where I thought like, oh, maybe it will be okay, you know? But then I remember being in the room with my mom and the admissions representative kind of going over paperwork and being forced to sign something. And I remember saying to my mom, like, dad told me to never sign anything unless he's here. Like, you know, does he know I'm signing this? And I didn't have the, the capability of, of understanding the legal jargon on that paperwork. So I don't know what I signed at that moment. But then the woman said like, okay, your mom's going to leave now. And that's when I really started to break down. Cause I was asking the woman all sorts of questions like, well, how long am I going to be here? And then they brought me to my team. Island View was split into three girls teams, three boys teams, 30 people could fit on each team. And I was on copper team, kind of brought in and, and then went through the whole initiation stuff. Wow. Okay. Initiation. This sounds like hazing or something. What is initiation? <laughs> well, so like, again more delousing shampoo oh, they were right. big on the anti-lice another stretch and like again made to squat cough spread my cheeks show behind my ears as if i had drugs taped right. behind my don't, ears 
I've got a quarter ounce tape behind my ear. Don't mind me. Right. Right. Like, and so that's when they did the initial body mapping, which, so they had like a piece of paper with like a hollowed out shape of a human body front and back. And they would go through and they closely inspected, like scanned you up and down and marked each little mark you had on your body so that if you were to self-harm or get a tattoo while you were, you know, if you visited yeah. home, they would be able to detect a change. Like that's how much control they wanted to have like over our autonomy. Like you couldn't even like get a scratch without them knowing essentially. You were brought into this team. You're on team copper now or copper team. Yeah. And what was everyday life like at Island View? I'm sure a lot of structure, obviously. Right. So right. So I, I was given like a mentor, like when you would be a new kid, you were like a mentor. So that's the person they would like bring in their thick handbook, read every, they had to read every page to you. And then I ended up having to do this with a new girl later on down the line. But so they like, kind of taught you the ins and outs and started correcting you immediately upon entry. Like within 12 minutes of getting there, they're like, like I bent over to tie my shoe and my lower back showed. And they're like, we don't, we don't allow that here. That's skin. No. And I'm like, excuse me. None of my clothes are going to fit me because I gained 20 pounds in wilderness from peanut butter. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Like, because I would only eat peanut butter there because I couldn't, like I, I, for a while in wilderness, I couldn't make a fire. And if you couldn't make a fire, you couldn't eat hot food. So you would have to just eat like crunchy, dehydrated beans and rice and ramen. And so I was like, I'll just eat peanut butter all day. It's fine. Um, But yeah, so at Island View, like kind of once you got into the swing of things, your compass, wouldn't have to follow you around anymore. And day-to-day life consisted of just, it was like so mindless. Like, and and I was there for so long that I like stick to the same schedule now, uh, 12 years later. So we would wake up at like 6.30, start cleaning. Then we would go to breakfast, come back, clean more. And then we would have our morning meeting. And during our morning morning meeting, somebody's job was to, like a, a resident's job, was to go around each room and each bathroom and inspect the cleaning. Mm-hmm. Every single day, they went with a white glove and would go along the surfaces and be like, there are dust particles. No, like you're not allowed to call home this week. So they would kind of pull your privileges. If you've got a certain number of points, they were really particular about like the shower handles and faucet handles, like watermarks. So I find myself literally like polishing all metal surfaces. Like I'm like, no, there can't be marks. Yeah. Um, No fingerprints, no nothing. No. And like obsessively cleaning. Like if somebody's going to come to my house, like I live alone. I have a lot of animals, but I live by myself. And so if a friend is going to come over who guaranteed any of my friends have like 10 times worse, messier houses than I, but it feels like, oh my God, I have to clean every single room. Every single thing has to be perfect before the person gets there. And they'll walk in and they'll be like, whoa, it smells like 
bleach. Emily, you've been cleaning. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's just casual, you know. Casual like, cleaning is your like toothbrush and little yeah. magnifying glass. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> big thing, just kind of, you know, oh my gosh. Exactly. So we would do the morning meeting and then we would go to RT, which was recreational therapy. And each and every single day we had to run four miles around this gym or we would go outside and be made to run the track, which was like this gravel circle. My mom told me that they had horses there. There was horses on the perimeter. So you would like see them while you were running and the fence, the eight foot high fence that kept us in had electricity. It was like an electric fence. So, so many girls would go and touch the fence and like purposefully electrocute themselves. And like, you know, that's horrible. Yeah. Um, Were they trying to get out? Was that their plan? They're like, I'm going to go latch onto this fence and maybe they'll let me go. Or maybe I'll die. Like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) Uh, So after, After a while, like so many people touched the electricity that they had to like turn that off. But then two girls ended up, you know, like a a month after they turned off the electricity, two girls went over the fence and through the fields and made it to like a gas station in the in the city. And then they were picked up by police. But they took that opportunity after a while. Like my shins were really hurting. I was 14. So I was in developmental years and I would be like in so much pain in my legs and they'd be like, no, you're just growing pains. I like would complain to my parents all the time and they would like end the phone calls or lock it out in letters home, like with like Sharpie. Eventually they took me to a doctor who was like, oh, you definitely have shin splints, which is like minuscule fractures in the, in the shin bone. And it was from like that high impact running, but they still made me run after that. And I have severe knee and leg pain, concurrent pain because of that. It's so hard to believe that they would think that it was ethical or right in any way to be censoring your communication with your own parents. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's not like you were like, hey, mom, hey, dad, can you guys bring a bomb? next time you come you know what I mean like that I understand right sure yeah like maybe right to be having that kind of communication um but especially when it's about your own needs and something so important as your medical care right I mean I remember one time they ended a phone call with my grandma simply because I said like nanny their food is nowhere near as good as yours I really miss your baking and your cooking and it was like dial tone and I'm like, they hung, y'all hung up because of that? Like, come on. I was just complimenting my grandma and saying I miss her food. They just didn't want any parents to figure out what was going on because obviously any loving person would be like, oh my God, like, let me get you out of there. Sorry. So after the recreational therapy, we would usually go to school for like, in school is a loose term. All the teachers were educated at the University of Phoenix online, which was like later disaccredited. So for history class, I was there for very long. I repeated the same courses over and over and over. And I just thought I was dumb. But then I figured out like, no, they're just not giving me new 
learning stuff. Like I'm doing the same math packets, like every like eight months that goes by, it's all the same uh, curriculum. And for, for example, like when we studied Africa in history class, we watched Blood Diamond. And then they were like, okay, now we're going to study Russia. Let's put on Anastasia. <laughs> right. They were, oh my God. Yeah, so it wasn't real school, but we were in classrooms with the boys. So all the girls would be on one side of the class and all the boys on the other. But we were not allowed to make eye contact with each other because that was like a felony. So you could either have your head down or look at the whiteboard or at the teacher. But of course, the whole time we were all like googly eyes at each other. Like, but like often teachers would go and report to staff after class was over and be like, Emily looked at three boys and then I would get three privileges pulled or they would call a group on me for being so overtly sexual. My gosh, teenage girl looking at boys. Uh. So let me ask real quick. So what would happen if they called a group on you? If something was found out, like brought to light, like, you know, from like just any breaking of the rules that needed special attention and like confrontation, so to speak, that that was the purpose of it is they would be like, we're having a special group and they could kind of do it at any given time. And they would sometimes pull us out of class or like gym There was definitely, like, a lot of people that for a long time I, like, thought were good humans and and probably did care about us. There was people that never laid a hand on anybody, like, in forms of, in terms of restraint and stuff. There was some people that, you know, even looked disturbed by it. But they sure as hell never said anything. And they were super complicit in our abuse. And they stood there while kids were getting hurt and tortured on the daily, could have called CPS, they could have contacted our parents, they could have, like, what would you do, you know, what would I do, something. Some of the staff members that were, like, too easy on us would get fired within a couple days of starting. At Island View, like, one of the night staff, like, one of the guys that would come around with a flashlight every hour and shine a flashlight on our faces to make sure we were a still alive and b not masturbating and it was it was always men that would be checking on us at night and like only in the last few years has my brain realized how gross even that is like while we were asleep come on so like one of the night staff who like he probably got paid like nine dollars an hour to do that he now runs island view he is the program director. So it just goes to show if you do what they say and like, you know, the staff had to be compliant too, in a way. And if, and you get rewarded. So let's talk about the restraints for a second, because I think a lot of these places, when they talk about restraints, they're like, Oh no, no, no. It's, it's only if they're a danger to themselves or others. Right. But that's so subjective what you consider to be a danger, right? So, um, you know, we were talking before we started recording and I told you that, you know, I worked for the state mental health system and, um, or I used to, I don't anymore, but I did for many years. 
And so when we consider someone a danger to themselves or to someone else, that means they're literally about to kill themselves or they're literally, I mean, like something in their hand, like the action is being taken, they're about to kill themselves or they're about to, you know, hurt someone else. So what did that look like in the program? Like when would they restrain people? How would they restrain them? Like, can you kind of give us a visual on that? Like you said, they would say they only use restraints in situations of, of you know, suicidal situation or someone else is going to get hurt. But really, like, they would restrain us for the littlest things. And, like, they would agitate us first and get us to the point of reaction. So the kid would react either, you know, outrageously. And that's kind of where they got you. They'd be justified in their actions, or at least in their mind, they were justified in whatever they chose to do next. So oftentimes kids would be hysterical. Sometimes you would be crying too hard or getting into a verbal altercation with someone else, like maybe talking too loudly. But like, I remember people just getting tackled like it felt like out of nowhere sometimes like it, we'd all look at each other like what what they do like what was she doing you know <laughs> like what happened mm-hmm. and um there was definitely like certain staff members where you could see it in their eyes which ones kind of enjoyed having that physical power and like that opportunity like they'd be like pi4 which is personal intervention for level four they'd be mm. like pi4 and the staff would like you'd see which ones would pop up the quickest over oh they time. would yeah they're like i'm on my way it's yeah, like, like i'll be right there yeah yeah and they <laughs> always get a running start tackle the kid to the ground which would often result in rug burn because you're being slid up you know yeah. you slide against the floor and some staff would like be punching you in the takedown, like in the ribs. They'd kneel in your back, put a boot in your back. Some kids would get their neck stepped on, like have a boot like on their neck. And then you would either choose to calm down, which in that scenario, when you're getting physically attacked, how are you, how can you even be expected to just be like, I'll go with this? Sure. Right. Ah, yeah. um, <laughs> but then the kids uh. that would fight back would be like screaming for dear life and like clawing and punching the staff right back. You know, like I saw staff members lose teeth. I saw staff members come to work the next day with an eye patch after getting poked in the eye, which like fuck yes for those kids. Cause the times I got restrained, I got restrained twice. Like I went limp. I gave in cause I was like, if I stop, they'll let me go. So the kids that didn't stop and the kids that fought back were often dragged into the timeout room and they would kind of drag you like like a pig being brought to roast like with Mm -hmm. your hands you know like you there was no way of getting out of that position and they put you in this room the timeout room it was they called it like a de-escalation room but it was like the size of an elevator and it was four walls and a floor and often kids would have to wear like a foam helmet to prevent them from bashing their heads against the walls. Like there was stains in that room. Mm. Kids were kept in there for hours upon hours. Some were in there multiple times a day. Like there was certain kids that were just 
targeted. And one girl was in the timeout room like every single day for like three months. Mm. She never gave up. And she always had that like tenacity and always, always, always landed herself in the timeout room. And it was so hard to see and even hear. Like if you didn't see it, you could hear it. And the screams are what stick with me the most you know you would you would hear the child in there for hours just like guttural screams for the most desperate sounding thing that could come from a human and it's that's what fills my nightmares yeah like echoing screams just that would you know no matter where you were in that building if someone was in the room you would know yeah I you know I uh, in the program that I went to I had never been restrained, but there were a lot of people close to me that were. And I think that that was one of the most traumatizing aspects of it was seeing people that you loved and that you cared about being held on the ground by grown men and and, and they're losing it, right? right? Because, you know, if we're talking about like dignity and respect and, um, you know, just having your sense of self and your sense of safety, being physically restrained like that, you lose all of that, right? Because you are literally in the hands of someone else, right? They're going to do with you whatever they want to do with you. You have no control of your physical autonomy, of your physical safety, of, you know, um, even just consent to not be touched, So oftentimes, like you said, kind of like in my nightmares, I hear those voices of people saying, you know, get off of me, get off of me. Right. And and it's such a powerless feeling because you know in that moment that you can't do a freaking thing unless you want to be right next to that person going through the same thing yourself. Right. Mm, So stressful. So you were there for 17 months. You obviously had gained levels and, and, you know, worked the program. Um, So what did that look like when it was time for you to leave? At a certain point, I, like, had been there for eight months. Mm -hmm. And we, once you got to a high enough level, you could occasionally visit home. And and I went home for my longest visit, which was, like, four and a half days. Not that long. But that was, like, felt like two months in, in program days. So I was here in St. Louis and basically I was put on the plane to go back to Utah where I was supposed to graduate within the next two months. Nobody told me that. They never told you when you were going to graduate. So you'd stay on your toes till the second you were like leaving the facility. Cause some girls graduations would get pulled from them like while their parents were like flying to Utah Mm -hmm. and so they wouldn't really give you any opportunity to like you know just like fake it or whatever they made you be a part of the program till the second you left so basically I was we landed in Utah where I was supposed to get off and I sat there I'm sure you can tell like I'm not an evil person like I didn't have ill intentions by what I did but I just sat there and my body felt paralyzed and I in my brain I was like staff will come get me or one of these flight attendants will kick me off or I'll just get up and and be on my way back like I have several times before yeah but something in me wouldn't move and I think deep down I was just done 
like I had been home. I had felt that like, you know, like being in my own bed, being with my dog and my family and my grandma. So basically I like just sat there and sat there and sat there. And then like, it didn't cross my mind that that plane would turn on and take off. Oh my God. That was not an option in my mind. But then it did, and the engines turned on, and I had seen the flight attendants do the count, like counting how many people were on the plane after everybody got off in Utah, and they didn't notice me. I was little, and the guy next to me was big, and I just kind of leaned back in the seat and covered my face and like hoped they wouldn't see me, and they didn't. And so then it went on over the loudspeaker they were like you know in route to san francisco and i was like yes uh hell yes yeah. i guess we're going to san francisco but even then like even when the engines were on and the plane started moving i was like there's no way this plane is going to take off with me on it like right <laughs> uh, just so casual and so it took off like i asked the guy next to me and i was like Oh, my friends just texted me and said their car broke down. Would you be able to give me a ride to Fisherman's Wharf? Which is like, I had read about San Francisco in a book. Like I'm from St. Louis. So like, you know, California was always the dream. I just said the first, the only place I knew in San Francisco. And I was like, Fisherman's Wharf. Yeah, take me That's there. That's where I'm going. <laughs> yeah. And so he took me there. He kind of questioned me on the drive there. He, That man was so respectful and appropriate and nice. And he gave me $20 and a sweatshirt. And he was like, wow. I don't really believe you that you have friends coming, but you seem pretty set on whatever mission you're on. So good luck, be safe. And I was like, oh my God, thank you. Um, now I have money. Wow. Right. Little um, did he know you're running from this crazy program institution and you're like, right? you know, wanted. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so the first <clears throat> night I was in San Francisco or the first, like he dropped me off and I paced the piers back and forth. Like, like watching all the people, like I just, I hadn't been emerged into society like that in so long so like you know I watched all the couples like going on the rides and going into the fun house and just they're just this normal scene of yeah. like just happiness and I'm like whoa what is this <laughs> like yeah. and so I fell asleep on a bench on a pier and I woke up with like several homeless people like around me and I was just like oh hi I'm gonna go and then <laughs> I started walking and uh again like just kind of paced around the city all day I got myself to hate Ashbury which was like the only other place in California I knew about um hate street yeah legendary and so I was like I want to go there that's where all the hippies are I'll be able to smoke weed I was like that was like a, the, a big priority in my mind. I was like, I need to smoke a bowl. And so I wandered around Hippieville all day and then I got on a bus and I was like, what do I do now? And right. so I just rode the bus and rode the bus and then it started getting dark and the bus driver said to me like, there's only a couple stops left, sweetheart, before we get back to the station. At one point, a young man and his friend boarded the bus. They sat down at the back of the bus and I was the only other passenger. 
they like interacted with me and were like, do you want to come get pizza with us? And I was like, no. And they were like, are you sure you look hungry? We'd be happy to get you some food and like water. And I was like, do you have weed? And they were like, yes. And I was like, okay. I'm in. Um, and so like we went and got pizza and like, I I, like remember the front front of the pizza place, you know, and we sat and talked. I told them my name was Alice because I had just finished reading like Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And I was like, my name's Alice. Like I'm in boarding school in New England, but I'm just on a a big break right now, like a vacation because I was scared to, to tell him the truth. But had I told him the truth, he probably, you know, would have actually kept me more hidden and helped me not get captured. So I stayed in San Francisco in Oakland for 18 days with him and his family in San Leandro. And I don't know, I haven't had many opportunities. I tell him all the time, but... I've never been able to publicly like say how grateful I am to that family for like keeping me safe, feeding me three meals a day, making me feel cared about. And just like the safety is a big thing. I could have wound up in so many different scenarios that would have been bad uh, had I not run into him. So I was really lucky to find somebody that took me in and, was, you know, generally cool. Although they, again, didn't have any idea what was actually going on with me. And so I feel bad to have pulled them into my drama. So basically, like, partied for a good little bit in California. had a, like, like, and I, I feel bad saying I had a great time because while I was, like, having the time of my life, the whole nation was looking for me. And I was national news in California and Utah and Missouri and persons, flyers everywhere. And my parents went on national TV and said they weren't going to send me back. And the whole St. Louis community rallied around them to help find me. Although nobody had blinked an eye when I initially got sent away. Like nobody went looking for me the first time I went missing. It took you know, being an actually actual missing person for people to be like, where's Emily? Oh my God, we care about her so much. Uh, they they really don't. Um, but so basically I guess the guy who I had been staying with, his friend had seen my mug on the news and was like, that looks like Alice. That's weird. That looks like Alice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, that's not. She said her name's Alice. I can't be the missing girl. This is totally different. So he <clears throat> called like the tip line and basically the FBI and police wouldn't issue an Amber Alert for me because they had issued previous Amber Alerts for me because I had run away like before getting sent away. So, like, they were like, nope, she's a runaway. We can't do an Amber Alert for her. And so there is a family in Missouri, like, and, like, people who are into true crime may know the name Sean Hornbeck. Um, He was a young boy that was held kidnapped. He was kidnapped at a very young age and held hostage for many years and sexually abused, tortured. And essentially, like, you know, he was a, he eventually broke free when the guy kidnapped another little boy and 
um, Sean's parents never gave up hope. So they started a foundation for missing and exploited children who, you know, for whatever reason, the system won't give them an Amber Alert. So they created something called a Sean Alert. So um, dude in California's best friend called in the Sean Alert. And Sean Hornbeck's parents flew from St. Louis to California to see if it was a legitimate thing, like if it was really me. They came into this this guy's apartment and they were like, I, I instantly started running. I'm like, oh, they're here for me for sure. Uh, you know, and so Thank I like. Thank you so much, everybody else. See you later. This is my yeah, time to go. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like trying to make my way out a window and they're like pulling my legs back in. They're like, we know it's you. And I'm like, no, it's not. Um, <laughs> so they're like, just give up. And I. And they, they're like, we have something to tell you. And I was like, what? And they're like, well, one, do you know you're a missing person? And I was like, no, I, I don't. I didn't know anybody was looking for me. Like, And I didn't. Like, I was so young and so naive. I had had a birthday at Island View at that point. So I was 15 at that time. Mm-hmm. But still, so naive. And so basically they were like, look, your parents have been on national TV. And they said, if you just come home, they will not send you back to Utah. Mm -hmm. And so they also were like, we don't know how to tell you. Your parents said you won't react well to it, but your grandma's dying and you need to come with us. And I was just like, is this something they're just telling me to get me to come with them? Or is this real? I guess I'll just preface this little story with like, my grandma was like the most influential person in my life. She's one of the only people that I ever connected with and like felt true love for Like she was like my soulmate Mm -hmm. Um, and just my best, best friend and just so loving to me. And so like on the off chance that it was true, I was like, sure, I'll go with you. We flew from San Francisco to St. Louis. I had to deplane at the tarmac because there was so many news crews. Like they were like, look up. And I looked up at the windows, the viewing windows, and it was full of reporters. And they like put a black fucking sheet over my head and put me in a Tahoe and like, you know, mobbed off. Wow. It was overwhelming. And so then I was brought to my grandma's retirement home. And so in my head, I'm thinking like, you know, there's no, like, she's probably just sick. Like, you know, like she was fine 18 days ago when I was just home. She was, she had been healthy when I was home. I walked into her room at her retirement home and everybody was kind of gathered around. And like, I remember saying, hi, hi, dad. You know, they didn't even respond to me and they were like, go in there, see Nanny. I went to her bedside and she was on hospice, which like, I didn't know. Nobody told me like, hey, she's unconscious. Like she's going to be different than the way you know her. She like didn't say hi back to me and I was trying to talk to her and I was just like, you know, nanny, wake up, like, wake up. What? And I remember getting to the volume of like screaming, wake up. And then her feet started turning blue and she died right in front of me. 
and I stayed home for her funeral. Thanksgiving rolled around. So I, I probably was home for like two weeks, two and a half weeks until one day I woke up in a car and knew I wasn't in St. Louis anymore. I was like, well, this is that red sand that's only in Utah. And pulling up to the facility, like they were bringing me back to Island View. Door barely shut when they pulled me out of the car before my mom pulled off. There was like five staff members like waiting to get their hands on me, like foaming at the mouth to punish me and just, you know, because I had caused a lot of trouble for Island View and Aspen as a whole. Like the FBI was in the facility investigating. Right, they're like, we don't want any eyes on what we're doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because when you're abusing mm-hmm. kids, you want the FBI nowhere near. Basically, they strip searched me, berated me, interrogated me. They were like, who helped you? What did you do? What do give us a list of drugs that you did. We're going to drug test you anyways. So you better be honest. And, uh, I was just silent. I was like, you know what? Fuck you. Like, fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. I'm not taking my clothes off. I'm not doing that again. I'm going to sit here. Like eventually they got me to take my clothes off. But then I just stood there with my arms glued to my side. I'm like, I am not doing this Simon Says bullshit again. They like lifted my arms up for me, held them out, spun me around, forced me down. This dude took his forearms on my shoulders and like pushed me until I like squatted, coughed and showed that there was no drugs up my butt again. And then I was punished and they were like, you don't even know what we're going to do to you. They were like, get ready. You think it was bad before when you ran away, just get ready. And they were right. They were right. Until that point, like I had been through various forms of isolation as punishment. They loved isolation, but nothing to the degree that I was in after I ran away. It was a punishment called individual focus where you would have to sit at your desk all day in a white lawn chair. And if you had to go to the bathroom, you would have to write it down on a piece of paper with a crayon, rip it off. There'd be a staff member guarding outside of your room and uh, you would put the piece of paper on their little desk. I was on that punishment for 58 days. And the biggest part of that isolation was you weren't allowed to speak, no nonverbals. So like you couldn't even look at anybody and nobody could interact with you. I was 15. I just watched my grandma die right in front of me. And that was like a level of pain that was just earth shattering. And I had never been through death before. And I, I like, I would cry so hard and they would come in and they would be like, you know, shut up. Like, you're not allowed to make a sound. Like, you're not allowed to cry. And so, and they would be like, you don't feel bad. You just got caught type of thing. And, right. And you're ma- manipulating and, you know, looking yeah, for attention. They said you're being manipulative. You don't care about your grandma. And it's like, oh, she's like, like, she, she didn't even know where I had been, really. You know, like, mm-hmm. she was so, she was old, and, and there was no way her brain could have conceptualized, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I don't think she would have allowed it. I think if she knew where I really was, she would have 
come and gotten me and save me from that hell. Staff and therapists both would be like, you know, if you didn't run away, she wouldn't have died. She had a heart attack. You caused it. That's your fault. And so I've had to carry that into adult life. And like, that's just such a huge trauma that I wasn't even allowed to deal with. And I still haven't. And and because, like you said, initially at the time, you internalized it in a way that was not healthy, not even being allowed to grieve and going through all of that chaos and uh, just everything all at once and then being right back where you started. Right, right. And the isolation was like, it's just like hard to describe if you haven't been through it or it's hard to understand if you haven't been through it. But like after the first month, I was like, there's no way they're going to keep me on this like even a day longer. And then it was like another 30 days. And like, I I felt myself going insane. I felt myself deteriorating mentally to where like, you know, like I had to live in, in this little bubble that I like created in my head and like tell myself jokes and I wasn't allowed to read or do anything or, or even speak. So like, even if I started like muttering shit to myself, which after a while, I definitely was like, like speaking to myself, you know, at that time, I didn't realize that damage was being ingrained in me. But now I do, you know, like, like when I, when I get so stressed out or so anxious, I find myself like talking to myself and muttering to myself. And I'm like, whoa, you look crazy. Like, you know, and it's, it's not like full on conversations. It's just, I'll say shit out loud to myself. And I realize that that's absolutely something that I didn't do before. Right. Uh, and then <laughs> that's, I started. That's- That's so funny because I literally do the same thing. And like sometimes I'll be in the store looking for something and I'm just like talking to myself, right? I'm like, okay, what? Did I have this? I don't know. I don't remember. And I'm kind of like talking to myself. I'm like, wait, did I need to get one of these things? And But I'll be saying it out loud. um, And I'll have, this has happened several times and it always happens at this one store. uh, But there will be an employee walk by. (laughs) And I'm like, and they look at me so weird. And so it's taking me some time to be like, is this normal? Or is this something that I've developed over having so much silence in my life? And especially being in isolation, like how you were, I mean, we are social human beings. We are meant to be touched and loved and to communicate and have laughter and have that stimulus. And so there's so much research that shows sensory deprivation creates very real, even hallucinations, right? It creates all different kinds of psychological effects because your brain is trying to have some kind of stimulus right the right, brain is like right. trying to pick up on something no i mean like i would find myself like counting the dots on the ceiling like the ridges on the wall like the number of lines in the wood on the desk like yeah just next level stuff like i wasn't allowed to do any sort of anything except sit there and think about what i had done and all i could think about was my grandma and so i don't know if i'll ever be able to process any of that like the isolation the just all of it and like while i was in isolation they would be having groups about me 
and how my runaway affected them and triggered their issues. And they were all like, I do believe a lot of them were probably worried about me. Fine. If you need to talk about it, fine, get it off your chest. But like, that's how they would just ostracize you. And like, it was like everybody against me. And like, I could tell some girls in the group just like cared and missed me while others were like, how dare she have done that and caused so much chaos for all of us. And so it was just a very dramatic turn of events. And, you know, like a lot of people ask me, like, if you could go back, do you wish you wouldn't have run away knowing you would have gotten out in two months? And honestly, like, I don't think had I not run away, I wouldn't have been able to say goodbye to my grandma because I had just been at home. So there was no way on earth had I flown back to Island View and she got sick within the next two or three weeks that they would have been like, yeah, she can go home. Mm -mm. And so I, I like stand by my decision of doing that, even though it, it came with such consequences, it was worth it to be able to say goodbye to my grandma. Absolutely. So How the hell did you get out of that place the second time? After the isolation, I kind of got with the program. I need to behave or they're going to keep me here till I'm 18. Island View had actually offered my parents a scholarship to send me back there for as long as I needed. But now, like as an adult, I realized that that was Island View and Aspen very smoothly avoiding a very large lawsuit that my parents could have had against them for letting me run away, run across the country, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But instead, my parents took the free treatment because they were like, well, we don't want her at home. So of course she can go back. So like... They like treated me like I I was the one there for free and I was made to do a lot more cleaning stuff and just like, just I was the girl that ran away and I'm still the girl that ran away. Apparently, you know, staff members and people that still work in programs tell this story to kids in programs currently. They use my first and last name. And then it's a huge shock when the kids get out and they come and find me on Facebook. And they're like, are you that girl that stayed on the plane that Kaoni told me about? And I'm like, yeah, like, why are they talking about me? Like, stop. This is so Um, weird. Let it go. It's like 12 (laughs) years later. (laughs) Nothing exciting has happened since then, apparently. (laughs) Exactly. So um, I kind of like started working the program and, you know, just, just being about the rules. I turned into a little Island View robot, we called them, you know, once you started leveling up and like the level system in itself created such a toxic, like, Lord of the Flies divisive environment where it was upper levels versus lower levels. So eventually upper levels would be handing out punishments and pulling privileges and running therapy groups. And so little 15 year old me eventually got to the highest level and I was kept on the highest level for four months, which was unheard of. Mm -hmm. They would only like you would get to the highest level and then like leave a month later. They wouldn't give you that much of a good time in there. Like, you know, cause the high levels came with some serious perks. Like you could skip a therapy group once a week or get an extra 10 minutes on your phone call, which was valuable. So 
you know, I eventually became an upper level. I started running the punishment committee. I filled the job position called team mentor. And I ran that shit and I became in charge, not totally in charge, but I was like just trailing around staff all day. And and like, I would help lower levels confront each other and they would come to me with their problems and be like, this person's doing this. And, you know, that was like a special exception to the rules because we were not allowed to drop names. Like Mm -hmm. you couldn't say somebody else's name if they weren't present, Mm -hmm. but they were allowed to come to me and drop names with me. And just like, they put me on this freaking pedestal and it was so that they could say, like, she's a success story. She's- right. Look at this turnaround. She's exactly. yeah, all because of Island View. Yeah. And see so, what happens when you work the program. And Exactly. Yeah. So I was made to do things that to this day I feel so guilty about. Like me and my friend were talking earlier about my friend Mallory, who was like, I swear she was like 12 or 13 the day she got there. She was, I was the youngest until Mallory got there. And Mallory was this little ball of joy and light. And she would wake up like singing show tunes and Snow White. And I would literally say like, Mallory, shut up. Like, stop being so happy. What is wrong with you? It really like dulled her shine. And I feel so bad about that. And this girl... Mallory had no issues when she went in and when she got out her list of issues was this long and she ended up killing herself and that's something that I feel so bad about like I you know like I can't even describe the guilt I have and not being able to have told her how sorry I am and that that's not me and like whatever meanness and negativity I put onto her like I just you know and all of us were like that with each other like you would be best friends with everybody but in a hot second turn on them just to get yourself ahead so you couldn't trust anybody like like again we were just made into these monsters and and made into compliant individuals that would do literally anything to get out of there. Like I stayed on a, on a plane, you know, (laughs) like eventually they told me, look, you can't be here anymore. You're better. I eventually like graduated and I have such a voice now. Like I, I've learned to stand up for myself and I have a certain level of standards for people that I allow in my life. Mm -hmm. Accountability is a big thing for me and stems from just not being able to assert my needs or wants at all and not be listened to when I did. I guess that's a silver lining in my lack of fighting back when I was a teen and just laying down and taking the abuse. I really transformed into an adult who takes no shit do not do no harm take no shit is like how I live my life I so can relate to that and I feel like because when I worked my program you know like I mentioned earlier I never got restrained never went through that but that's because I was so compliant I was so like terrified to be in trouble but in a lot of ways it made me feel even more victimized just because I was so shut down so now what I do (laughs) I remember my boyfriend now we've been together for like eight or nine years 
But anyways, when we first got together, we were out at some bar and there was a guy that was fighting with his girlfriend. He was being very aggressive and up in her face and being very intimidating. And I immediate trigger for me. And so I intervene now. I say shit when I see shit. And so it's so funny because I'm sure my boyfriend at the time was like, girl, what are you doing? Like, don't get involved in their fight or whatever. And, uh, but I totally did. I was like asking her, I'm like, are you safe? And I'm like, you get away from her. (laughs) You know? And so then he's turning to us like, you know, uh, but it's because so many times I saw people in bad situations and I couldn't say something. I couldn't do something. And so now I do. There was another time I was literally at the post office. I was dropping some mail in the mailbox and down the street, there's this SUV. It was like a Tahoe or something. And there was a woman hanging out of the passenger seat. Yeah. Like hanging out the window. And she had like her her side of her shirt pulled down and her hair looked all crazy. And she was screaming. And so I literally, I hopped in my car and I followed them. And, you know, I know a lot of people will be like, oh my God, you don't know what they're going to do to you. But in those moments, it's like, I don't give a shit. Like right. I to do what I have to do. I, they, I ended up losing them, but I was on the phone with the police the whole time. I'm like, I'm following them right now. I'm on the trail. <laughs> like, you know. Um, but it's, it's insane how going through trauma like that will then create you have to take action later. You have to do something. You have to assert yourself. Right. When you're that powerless and so out of options. Yeah. And it's empowering. It's empowering to be able to stand up for yourself and command and demand respect and stand up for others when like, and being the only one to do the right thing. Sometimes I pride myself on that. And I think it's a a good way to be, although like it's irritating to some people. Sure. (laughs) And that's okay. (laughs) You don't care. Wow. So you graduate, you finally go home. What was your life like after? So I didn't go home. I actually went to New Hampshire for six months, six more months to the White Mountain School in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. It was a non-abusive college prep boarding school. I went home for like a Thanksgiving break and I told my parents like, look, like there's no point in me going back there. Like there's just no point. And that is something I regret. Like, I really don't have a lot of regrets in life, but not going back to the White Mountain School and, and, and having four years of solid education. I came back home to St. Louis. My parents enrolled me in like this online GED school. And basically like all I had to do was take a constitution test and a Missouri history test. And I was given my GED. And then life kind of just slowly like passed me by for several years. I kind of just hung out in my parents' basement in darkness and isolated and I wouldn't interact with them. I was a shell of a person. Even at the boarding school, like people would hug me and I'd be like, oh, you know, and like, just like, just like the having access to boys, I was out of control. And so it was just going from such a structured environment to having freedom was insanity, weird. And I couldn't assimilate with the other kids. And so even when I, my, I remember my first day at White Mountain, somebody coming up to me and being like, you're that girl that stayed on the plane, huh? And I'm like, 
oh, so all of you were warned about me. Cool. I would love to go somewhere where there's not this preconceived shit about me, even though I did it. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, you don't need to wear that for the rest of your life, though. I mean, I think you're wanting to be someone new and experience yourself in a new way. Right. So I like hung out at home and I eventually started dating the boy that I had been in a relationship with, like before I got sent away, like when I was 13, my parents, like their biggest goal in sending me away was to get me away from him. So naturally, of course, I like gravitated back towards him and I spent eight years in a very abusive, horrible relationship with him that Island View absolutely like set me up for like just the level of self-hate I had and and this notion that I wasn't going to be anything like Mm -hmm. I felt like he was my only option I had also gained 90 pounds in the program I went from being 90 pounds to like close to 200 in two years and so I was like I'm fat I'm ugly I'm damaged nobody will ever love me I'm gonna be with this degenerate loser who says he does Mm -hmm. at one point he he tried to kill me I had to jump out of a 25 foot when uh like it was the second story but it was 25 feet off the ground and I had to jump out of a window to get away from him and he went to prison I had the opportunity to make him a felon felon and like press charges and I didn't want to ruin his life with institutionalization. And then I got back together with him for another four years Mm -hmm. um, and put up with it and eventually just kind of got him out of my life. And that's something I'm so proud of, being able to get that person out of my life when I was so in that. I was single for a little bit, got into another relationship with a guy. It was like my fairy tale. In short, I'm a. I went to college for vet tech school. I have a vet tech degree. I, I used to run a pet sitting business where dogs would come to my house when their parents would go on vacay, and like I would walk like dogs all day, and I was making good money doing it. I was tagged in a Facebook post one day about a stray dog running loose. Met this dude who made the Facebook post. We caught the dog together. We fell in love. We decided to keep the dog together and play house. And it wasn't until we moved in together in three short months that he started showing his true colors. And like, man, like I can say like confidently that like eight years of physical abuse compared to the one year of psychological abuse with this guy, he would like scream things in my face, like, go join your fucking treatment friends, you loser junkie. He was one of the first people like I really confided in about the program and let him in. And then he would use it against me and like torment me with it. And he would tell me to like, he would literally encourage me to kill myself, which is something I never, I've never struggled with suicidal thoughts until I had somebody telling me to kill myself every day. And like, that's not any sort of darkness I would wish on anybody. Like even at Island View, I didn't want to die. But having it thrown in my face constantly, um, basically he ended up coming home one day and ghosting me, which better off without him. Obviously he's horrible. You know, I've just kind of slowly and but surely started like putting the pieces of like, who is Emily and, and, and like, what is Emily about? And, you know, trying to figure myself out and who I want to be and just how to do life 
with Mm. all of this. And I think I'm doing pretty okay. You know, I wake up every day, I smile, I, I, I try to love life and enjoy it because so many of my friends have ended up killing themselves Mm -hmm. really hard to not feel like, man, like that should be me. Like if I could trade places with, you know, my best friend, Avi, I would in a heartbeat. Like she is a daughter who now doesn't have a mother because of addiction and, and these things that are so correlated with having been in the program like so many of us turned to drugs like I was addicted to heroin for two years until I decided like it's not really helping and uh you know like I want to live and and I want to do something with my life so like it was really easy for me to get clean I just used cannabis while everybody else around me used other drugs I was just like I'll just smoke weed and get through the next six months of withdrawal it's been eight and a half years of being clean and I've never once thought I want to do heroin again or opiates so it's just devastating to know how many people maybe have died just on accident to numb themselves from all of it. And it's so trauma related and it's so avoidable. Right. You know, it's interesting because for a lot of years, I I compartmentalized my trauma, mm-hmm. right? I was like, oh, it's all separate. Like, it's not related. You know, that that one thing happened where I was abused and, uh, you know, that's that. And then I got sent to the program and that's a separate thing. And then I got addicted to drugs and that's a separate thing. And then I had domestic violence and that's a separate thing. Right. And so I for so long, which is so wild to think that I didn't really realize, oh, hey, it's all related. <laughs> right. 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 And when I did, which actually, to be quite honest, was relatively recently, it was like all of the silos that I had been keeping my trauma in opened. And I was like, oh, okay. But once I was able to realize that and see how it was all connected, it actually really allowed me to have more compassion for myself. Right. Right. Because I was like, you poor fucking child. Right. Right. You know? Like, I look back at all of that and I'm like, holy shit, you never deserved any of that, right? Right. I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your absolutely incredible story with us. And I wish everyone could see you because you have such a radiance in your face and a radiance in your eyes and your smile. And, And as you were telling your story, you know, I can just feel that you have such a huge heart and you have such a huge drive inside of you. The same drive that I'm sure got you through all of those things in your life. So thank you. It has been such an honor. Thank you so much. And like, you know, like it goes without saying, like, I just really appreciate the opportunity to tell my story and that like, I will always, always take every single opportunity to scream to the world about what happened to me in hopes I can prevent another kid from going through it. And like, I just like to say that, like, there are so many people that have died because of these places that wouldn't be dead right now if not, if they hadn't been sent away. And like a message to parents, if if there's parents that are listening to this that have kids in these places, like you can pull them out at any time and totally change the narrative and not have your kid end up like 
you know, so many of my dead friends. I guess if there's other survivors listening, like I just want to like continue echoing that message of like, we did not deserve this. There's nothing any child could ever do to deserve the level of torture that we've been put through. So yeah, I, I love everybody so much. Like everybody I meet through the survivor community just instantly feels like family and maybe that's trauma bonding, but like, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's better to be trauma bonded than not bonded at all. Okay. We got to, we got to find our, our togetherness and our, in our shared experiences there. So yes, just thank you for speaking life into us and for being so honest and so real. You're so appreciated and you're so valued in this world. So thank you. Thank you for that. So are you. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs)